Well, here we are again. Christmas is coming. In fact, Saturday is going to be the big day. It's already time. And I don't know if it's, I say this every year, but it just seems to be more true each year. The year has flown by. It's already that time of year. It seems just like uh, yesterday that it was last year. I, I don't know if the days seem to, to fly by faster as we get older. Um, sure seems like it to me. But we're here already. And I want to visit a familiar text that we hear this time of year. A familiar scene. Some of you may even have it depicted at your house, the nativity scenes. Uh, some people have in their houses or maybe out on their lawns. Maybe you have that, maybe you don't. But it's a familiar, beautiful scene we've seen many times. And I want to set this passage out in front of your minds as we consider a few things this morning. My actual text is not going to be here, but I want to turn there together. So take your Bibles, if you would. Let's stand together and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're going to read verse 1 through verse 7. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through verse 7. The Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I ask your blessing on the preaching this morning that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth of what this passage really means, the depths of it, the depths of your incarnation, and that you would help us to leave from here changed and to be ready to do what you have called us to do. So I ask now that you would do the work in us only you can do, move by your spirit in our hearts and help me to speak only what you want said and nothing more. I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. So most of the time we read this scene or we see it acted out in a children's play or some form or another and we say, oh, how sweet. What a serene and peaceful night. In fact, we just sang and we sing often at this time of year of the silent night, the holy night. Or we sing of the messages of the angels from other passages uh, that, that tell us going on in in Luke or in the book of Matthew in the first couple chapters there. We sing of, of things of Scripture. Hark the herald angels sing or listen to what they say. Glory to the newborn king. Although I don't think they actually sang. I think it was more of shouting, but I'll take it. We sing of their message. We, we sing of joy to the world because the Savior has come, right? And rightly so. I said when we... I said just a minute ago that I think the Christmas songs, as we call them, are some of the most high and holy hymns ever written. They speak not only of the birth of Christ, but of His kingship and His coming kingdom. And 
I think it's right that we do so. And we are so thankful for this, right? We are so very grateful. Because right here in Luke chapter 2, this is speaking about my Savior coming down in the greatest act of love, bringing salvation to man, bringing salvation for me, bringing salvation for you. And it is a peaceful, beautiful, holy night. However, my prayer is, and my hope is, that we don't miss something very important as we consider this. Because I fear too often we do, we pass over it and we don't actually spend some time thinking about one aspect to all this, an aspect that actually becomes one of the greatest motivating factors in our spiritual life. An aspect I hope to make clear this morning because while we might read this and see the pictures that people have drawn or, or think about it and say something along the lines of, oh, this is sweet baby Jesus, we might at the same time miss the depth of it all because this is God. This is God. Here on this manger, in this manger, on this night, is God. Does that escape our minds? Are we so familiar with the elements of the story, the the manger and the angels and the wise men and the shepherds and all of that, which I have preached on all aspects of that over the years? And do, Do we focus on those things that we forget at the main core of all this that this is God come down to man? Is He not given the the name Emmanuel, God with us? And I want to turn our minds to that just a little bit this morning. This is is God. This is not a normal birth. This is not just a normal person. This is God, who, by the way, is eternal. I think it it does us good to consider some things about God. God who is eternal, He has existed in eternity past. He will exist for eternity to come with no beginning and no ending. He just is. In fact, He says of Himself, I am. He is the great I am who has always been. The eternal one whom from the moment He spoke angels into existence, those angels have continuously lifted their voices in praise with shouts of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. That's what rings in heaven's halls. We get just a few glimpses into heaven. One in Isaiah and one in the book of Revelation where the angels are saying the same thing. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. God who is omnipotent, which means all-powerful. God who is omniscient, which means He knows all. God who is omnipresent, which means He is everywhere. This is who we're talking about, not just some idea or some creation in our head, but the Creator of all things. The high and holy God of heaven. The One who is sovereign over all His creation. Nothing happens outside of His knowledge. Nothing happens outside of His allowance or His guiding hand. He who spoke, and it was. Out of nothing came everything because of His Word. We read in the book of Genesis when He says, Let there be light, and there was light. Literally, light be, 
he speaks and light was. He who, as, in the, as he says in the book of Job, he who laid the foundations of the earth and he who has instructed the boundaries of the seas, the one who sends the wind, the one who sends the lightning and the rain, sovereign creator and Lord of all creation. He who is perfectly and utterly holy and worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise. The one who needs nothing from us because it's in Him that we live and move and have our being, as Scripture says. He became a man. God became a man. You see, He who is eternal allowed Himself to have a beginning here, didn't He? The glorious one of heaven who should have come to the adoration of all the world, did not come in a very glorious way, did he? He he allowed himself to become less than all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present. In fact, he set boundaries for himself within a human body. And there were no shouts of praise, save for heaven's host, which continued to praise him. Maybe a few shepherds, but no widespread praise like he deserves. Now on this night in Bethlehem, this silent holy night, something amazing and staggering happened. God became a man. This is not some cute idea, nor some selfish thing that we should turn it into um, where it becomes about us. No, the thought should put us on our face. It should put us on our face in humility, in thankfulness, because He has come down to us. That is the depth of this night in Bethlehem. That is the depth of the incarnation. And I want to focus just for a few more minutes on that this morning as we consider these things. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, a letter of Paul to a church at Philippi. Right after the book of Ephesians. I want to turn to a familiar passage. I'm sure you've read before or you've heard preached before. I want to look at it again this morning. Philippians chapter 2, if you would. Philippians chapter 2, Paul is instructing the church here on some very important things. And in chapter 2, he goes on to a discussion about humility. And he reaches to the ultimate example to tell us how we ought to be. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. <laughs> We're really good about watching out for number one. The problem is number one is ourself, right? <laughs> Not so much others. In fact, we have a tendency to warp the whole world in our own self-view. Even a view of God. We need to step back and realize who it is we're dealing with. And Paul's going to do that. 
He says, look not, everyone, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the mind of humility that he's talking about. Of humility. And he'll give now the example. And this is, this is much more than false humility some people know. Or some people uh, are so familiar with or they put out. This is a, a humility on a level that is far beyond us. Because as he goes on, he's going to use the example of the incarnation. That means God becoming a man. It's a fancy word for God taking on flesh. Look at verse 6. He says, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Well, that may be some confusing language, like why is Jesus robbing God? Did He really want something He had? or What's going on with that? It simply means He didn't need to take it because He already had it. It was not something He needed to be grasped or, or taken. No, He already had it. What did He have? Equality with God. The same form of God, the same essence of God. He didn't need to get it. He didn't need to work up to it. He didn't need to do anything to attain it. No, because He is of the same form, the same shape, the same nature, the same essence as God. Simply stated, Jesus Christ is God. Jesus of Nazareth who was born on this night here in Scripture is God. God the Son. And Scripture is clear on that. May I set just a few before you. John chapter 1. We know this, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And I don't care if somebody comes on your doorstep holding a different version of a Bible that tells you how much they know Greek, and that was translated wrong. They are wrong. It's simple third grade Greek. That's what John writes in, by the way. Easy enough to understand. When he writes down, the Word was God. That's exactly what he means. And that Word is Jesus Christ. For He says in John 1 and 14, the Word became flesh. We beheld His glory. And Revelation 19 seals the deal when it talks about the return of Jesus and it says His name is the Word of God. We're talking about Jesus. In the beginning, with God, being God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And Jesus Himself claimed this. This is not just something that is claimed of Jesus. Jesus Himself claimed to be God. John chapter 8 and verse 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that's a big statement. That's saying the same thing as God did at the burning bush, right? When Moses says, who am I supposed to tell these people who you are? What's your name? And what does God say? Yahweh, I am. Jesus says here, that's my name. <laughs> Before Abraham was, I am. Listen, you don't say that unless you're extremely crazy, a big liar, or you're God. And we know what the truth is about Jesus, right? Proven by His works, proven by His words. He could say that because He is God. 
Turn with me to the book of Colossians. Keep your finger here, we'll be back. But if you want to go just the next book to your right, the book of Colossians, just a couple pages over. Paul writing to the church at Colossae here. I want you to see some things that he writes. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So much we could preach here, but here's where I want you to focus in for today. Verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God? Does not Hebrews chapter 1 tell us that too? He is the image of God. The firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, listen now, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. I failed to write down the scripture that says, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You and I can't understand that. The fullness of God, the great eternal one, the one who is so holy, so powerful, the fullness is in Christ. This is much more than a baby that we are looking at in Bethlehem. It's the fullness of God. There's no doubt in Scripture that Jesus is God. He is named here in this passage we just read as Creator. And He says not only were all things created by Him and for Him, but by Him all things consist. He is the one who holds everything together. Without His sustaining Word, without His sustaining power, everything would fly apart and cease to be. That is who is in this manger. Go back to Philippians. Back to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 6 says, Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. All that to say Jesus is God. Jesus has always been God. He always will be God. Verse 7, But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There's a couple phrases here I want to pull out this morning. The first is in verse 1. Made himself is one word in Greek, and theological uh, Writers will use the term the kenosis. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but the phrase means to empty himself. When he made himself these things, he emptied himself. And it's not that he stopped being God in any way. No, Jesus was fully God and fully man. To say anything less is blasphemy. 
But what it means is he laid aside or he emptied himself of some of the privileges of his deity to become like us. He had to lay aside some of his glory. Why do you think he, he shined like, uh, what does it say? Wider, uh, a sheet whiter than any uh, uh, fuller soap can get it? I'm, I'm butchering that scripture. But as his transfiguration, it says he's, his countenance shines like the snow, right? And it was blinding to those who, who saw it. Why? Because he laid aside some of his glory to come down here. And for those brief moments on the Mount of Transfiguration, he took it back. But that's what he's talking about when he says he, he made himself or he emptied himself of some things. He laid aside some of his glory. He, lay, he laid aside the endless and deserved praise, that blinding glory, as I just mentioned. Do we not sing, veiled in flesh the Godhead see? Hail the incarnate deity. He had to limit himself to come here. <laughs> he limited himself. He contained himself. And not to the status of the king of the world, not to the status of an all-powerful ruler, but what does it say? He made himself of no reputation. Humanly speaking, and please understand what I mean when I say this, Jesus of Nazareth was a nobody. Just an everyday man. We know who he was, but to the world at large, he was just another baby. He made himself of no reputation. He made himself a servant. In fact, Isaiah chapter 53 says this, He has no form or comeliness, and we shall, when we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. You've seen a lot of paintings of Jesus, mostly a white guy with long hair and a beard, right? <laughs> that's, first of all, no, <laughs> that's not right. Do we think we would be able to pick him out in a crowd because he's the one walking around like this with a halo around his head everywhere? No. In fact, Isaiah is saying here, he doesn't stand out. There's, there's nothing physically appealing about him that draws us to him. And the most beautiful being ever the one who is to be worshipped for His beauty and for His holiness and for His uniqueness. That's what holiness means, by the way. He is unique and separate like anything else. The one who is praised for that became a nobody for us. The King of Kings became a servant. Listen, we will never know the depths of this or the depths of the phrase, He humbled Himself this side of heaven. Or maybe ever. Yes, this scene in Bethlehem that night was amazing. It was beautiful. But it was, uh, it was also horribly humiliating, if I may say so. It says he was found in fashion as a man, having the same likeness, having the same appearance, and the form and all that goes with it. John writes in, in his Gospel in 1 and 14 that the Word became, or the Word took on, flesh. And not just halfway or some part of it, all the way. God was fully man. Jesus was fully man. God allowed Himself to be born. Now listen, childbirth is a wonderful thing. 
We call it a miracle, right? It's pretty amazing. I, I watched both my children be born. I watched the whole process. It's pretty amazing how God designed it all, right? There's a baby in there, and then there's a baby outside. And wow, look at, look at this. This is, this is cool. Look, I got a son or I got a daughter now. And wow, it leaves you in awe. It does. And so I think, I think it's not too far off to call it a miracle because God, God has done amazing things with that, right? But let's be honest. It ain't pretty. It's pretty gross if you want to. Put it that way. All right? It doesn't matter if it's C-section or natural. It ain't pretty. And God went through that. The king of heaven went through things like that. Luke says he grew in stature as a man. And we think that's cute. Jesus as a toddler. I love the little guys and little toddlers. Oh, man, they're, they're so cool. There's things they say and... They're just cute. We think it's cute. Oh, Jesus is a kid learning to walk and bobble around. It's not really cute. That's the king of heaven we're talking about. Limiting himself to that level. We know of his ministry. We study it often, right? We know the miracles and the healings and the amazing things he said, but right there also is the unbelief. There were people that stood in the face of God the Son and said, I don't believe you. You are from Satan. You have a devil. Blasphemy. You know what they called him? Beelzebub. You understand what things like that mean when we realize who this is? It's a God the Son who created all things, who holds all things together, and He allows some sinful bag of bones to stand there and call Him demonic. We know the accusations. We know what it's all leading to. Does it not say here in verse 8, He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross? We know that story. But can I just remind you of, of a few things? You remember what they did to him, right? The false trials for the Holy One of Heaven. The physical brutality, the whipping, the beating. The things that they did to him. The Creator of all things was slapped in the face. which is probably one of the most insulting things you can do to someone short of spitting on them, which they did that too, didn't they? They took the hands that created everything and nailed them to an old rugged cross and hung him there to die. Bethlehem was the start of that. This was God's condescension to man, to a race of sinners who mostly turned their back on Him. Who mostly care for nothing but themselves. Who mostly worship everything else but the one to whom the worship is due. And still, God did that for us. Why do I make such a point about that? Why do I go, why do I go on so much about that? Because I think it really does matter. 
matters a whole lot. And this is something that should sink into our hearts. If God did that for me, that means some things. It means I need to step back and think about what it means for my life. That there are some things that are more important than right here and right now and my wants and my desires and my goals and my fill-in-the-blank because we get pretty taken with that stuff, don't we? We can get pretty selfish, pretty self-centered, and it, it's a trap we all fall into. And we can have some, if I can, I hope this comes out right or you understand it. We can even look at, at uh, the nativity or the Christmas story, whatever you want to call it, and get a selfish kind of aspect to it. Like, oh yeah, he came for me. <laughs> Missing the fact this is God that came to save me. And that, that should change a lot for me. It clarifies a few things for me. The incarnation clarifies a few things for me, and I just want to share three quick ones for the rest of our time. The incarnation, God becoming a man, doing all of that for me, solidifies the depths of God's love for us. Why do this? Why would God come down here to a world infected with sin that we brought on ourselves? He made it perfect, right? Eden, Adam and Eve, all that, it was perfect. It was amazing. We messed it up. Why not just annihilate the whole thing? Why not just wipe it all out and be justified in doing so, right? God made it right. We messed it up. In fact, we took it all the way down the road of sin, why not just wipe it out? After all, He's the Holy One. We walked away from Him. Why do this and go through all of this that we've described so far? Why? There's one answer to that, and that answer is love. Love. John 3.16 For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I don't think we can under, ever understand the depths of that little word, so. God loved the world so much, He came to us to save us. Ephesians chapter 2, you're familiar with these passages. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's all of us. We are all dead in our own sins, dead in our own trespasses. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that worketh now in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. We're all sinners. We're born that way. We, we live in a way that serves ourselves, and that's all of us. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He, he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. 
By grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. God, for his great love wherewith he loved us, saved us. Romans chapter 5, you know that passage too. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some will even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love, love is the motivating factor. Love is why God came down to us, why He became a man and took on flesh. Why? Because He loved us so much. There should never be a doubt of God's love for you. Too many look at the wrong indicators for God's love. Well, God doesn't love me that much because my bank account isn't that high. Or I don't have this possession or that possession. Or I'm sick or I've got this to deal with. You're looking at the wrong things. That's the wrong focus. You want to know God's love? Look to the manger. Look to the cross. For He came to save us because He loved us. The incarnation solidifies that for me. You know what else it solidifies for me? The absolute necessity for salvation. Not only does He love us, but the Christmas story points to the necessity of salvation. You see, if there was any other way, it would have been done. If it could have been done by animal sacrifices, that would have stayed. If it would have been by money or penance or something, then that way would have been done. God would have set that in motion. But we can't be saved those ways. It had, to be, it had to happen this way. The sinless Son of God giving His life for us. Acts chapter 4 says, There is salvation in none other. No other name given among heaven, excuse me, there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no other name and we must be saved by it. That name is Jesus. John chapter 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The scripture is clear, there is a need we have. We must be saved. We must be born again. Romans chapter 3, all have sinned. It comes short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, we all have sinned, but we can all be justified of those sins freely by the grace that comes through Christ, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. God has set forth this way. He has given his son. He has come down to us to shed his blood so that we might be saved. And he proves it by coming. Not just saying it, not just setting up something. No, he shows us we must be saved and he comes here to save us. 
This had to happen. This needed to happen. We must be saved. And it's not just your sins that point to the need. It's the fact that God actually came to accomplish it. See, all of us have a need to be saved. We have, to, we have a need that our sins be taken away so that we do not face the eternal judgment of God. And that is not because I say so. It's because by the fact that God came to save you and give His life as a sacrifice for your sin. He came because you and I needed a Savior. Listen, He provided what we needed. If we needed political deliverance, He would have gave a politician. If, he, if we needed economic deliverance, He would have given... Uh, Somebody who could fix it all. He came and He provided what we needed. And what does it say? What does the angel say in Luke chapter 2? Unto you is born this day in the city of David a what? A Savior. Because we need a Savior. This isn't something we make up to try to get people to join a church or make them feel better about themselves or This isn't the vices of man. No, this is what Scripture says, and it's proven by the fact that God came down to save you. You and I need to be saved. And the Lord God Himself has come down to accomplish that for us. The only thing we need to do is trust in Him. There's nothing else we need like we need salvation. We need it so much if I could put it this way, we need, we need it so much that God became a man to save us. Not only does the incarnation solidify God's love for me and for you, but it solidifies the absolute necessity that we be saved. He actually came down to save us so that we would be forgiven of our sins when we place our faith in Him. But the last one I want to finish with this morning It solidifies for me the reasonableness of His calling. Perhaps you know the Lord this morning in the free pardon of sin. You can look back to the moment where you were saved and you you trusted Him and you asked Him to save you. For me, that was when I was just an eight-year-old boy in the middle of March in 1990. That was the day that I was saved. After Sunday church, Sunday evening church, I went home and I was convicted of my sins and I, I bowed at the foot of my parents' bed and I prayed a very simple prayer Believing in my heart, I asked the Lord to save me. Lord, save me. At that moment, my sins were gone. I was given eternal life because I trusted in Jesus as my Savior. I pray you have that moment. Maybe the, the circumstances are different. Maybe it was at a different setting, different day. But I pray there's a moment you can look back and I ask the Lord to save me. I asked Him to forgive me of my sins. That moment, I was made alive. I pray you have that. Maybe you've had that for many years, or maybe you don't, and today is the day that you can bow before Him and ask Him to save you. He's proven His love for you. He's he's proven your need for it because He came to provide it. God became a man to die for your sins. I pray that you would see those sins and you would turn to Him and ask Him to forgive you. Lord, save me from my sins. It's really that simple. (laughs) There's nothing else that is needed. Belief in your heart, confess with your mouth, and what does the Bible say? Thou shalt be saved. I pray that you've done that. Maybe you've done that quite a while ago, and praise God for that. But my question is this morning, what are we doing with that? 
Because it's a tendency for many today to simply take the eternal life He's given and walk away and do whatever we want. And when you start talking about sacrificing for Jesus, people say, ah, no. Money? You're going to talk about tithing? Or my time? Going to church? Are you out of your mind? People think that way. They're calling themselves the servant of God is the worst thing they could ever imagine. What are you doing with what God has provided and all that we've talked about? God became a man to purchase that for us. And will we be so flippant we walk away and go about our own business justifying it to ourselves? Or are we following Him with our all? Saying, Lord, whatever you want. You see, God has a calling for us that we would commit our lives to following Him. That's what the church is all about. He wants us to join His local New Testament church through baptism and then live as a vital part of that community, reaching the communities around us. There is no lone ranger Christians in the Bible. There's no lone wolves wandering here and there. No, He has His, his churches and all parts of the land, his little, his little groups of, of um, local baptized believers to be about his purpose in their communities. To serve him and to praise him and to worship him for all that he's done for us. To give of ourselves and to share him with others. All the many things that scripture speaks of. You know what? His call for you and his call for me is the same as it was on that seashore that day. Come, follow me. And to some that sounds oppressive. To some that sounds boring. To some it seems extreme. Like I've got other things to do. Do you really? When you step back and consider the depth of the incarnation, do you really have other more important things? When the God of heaven came down here took on this flesh to save me from all my sins. Romans 12 and verse 1 says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's reasonable. It's not outside of asking it's not outside of our doing. or It's not too much for Him to ask to give our life as a living sacrifice to Him. Which, by the way, when we do, He blesses us abundantly and it's a better life serving Him than we could ever imagine. My life is so full of joy and peace. The world outside is a wreck, isn't it? They don't know what end is up or down. They're afraid of dying. They're afraid of every. They're afraid of other human beings and the breath that comes out of their mouth. That they're afraid of everything. But yet, I have a peace in God, a peace from God in my heart that passes all of that. You know what that comes from? Him, and doing my best to stay faithful to Him and follow Him. People think it's bad or it's oppressive. No, it's freedom. It's freedom. You know what Paul calls himself above all other things? A bond servant. Translated today, a slave. 
of Jesus Christ. And he says, that's who I am. Because in that is true freedom. It's not too much that he asks us to do uh, to to follow him. It's not unreasonable. There's no cross that he calls us to bear that is too much. And there's nothing that he would ask us to give that is too much. Why has he not given us his all? He has given everything for us, has he not? He has come down to us in the most humiliating way that we could think of. Why? Because he loved you. Because you needed salvation. Now all he asks us to do is follow. With the promise of his presence, with the promise of his strength, with the promise of eternal blessings our minds cannot even comprehend. So the question is this morning, are you? Are you following him as you should? Have you given your life to him as a reasonable service for all that he has done? That's the thought that I want to leave with you. The reality of what it means or what it meant when God came down to us. The immense love that was portrayed there as He came to us. that He calls me to follow Him and there's nothing that I could hold back from Him. As we start the family gatherings and the meals and the gifts and all this, all that goes along with the Christmas season, I, I hope you call to mind maybe the next time you see a nativity scene, I hope you think of what we talked about today. That God truly has given us the greatest gift of all. He has come, God with us. He has given His Son at great cost to Himself in a way that was unreasonable for Him. But yet He loves us so much that He did that for us. And then think of your own life, and chances are, if you're like me, perhaps we sold Him short in some areas. Maybe I thought at times he was asking too much. Maybe I need to remember what he's done for us, what he's done for me. Remember the depth of the incarnation. Let's bow our heads. Father, I pray you would take these words, use them as you see fit. We are so humbled and thankful that you took on flesh. You came here to this sinful world, this broken place, Lord, to provide salvation that we all need in the greatest display of love ever. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for salvation you provided in Him. Thank you for what this night in Bethlehem means for the cross and for the empty grave, Lord. We pray that Even now as we hear these words and we consider these things in our own hearts, Lord, of all that you've done for us, you would stir our hearts to be faithful servants to you, that we would freely give to you our life as you have freely given yours for us. Help us as we get distracted. Help us as we are oppressed. Help us as things would take us away from this thought that you would 
just reveal to us and settle in our hearts the depth of the incarnation so that we may be assured of who you are and your love for us. And we may in turn serve you with all that we have, Lord. Use these words and do the work among us only you can do. And draw those hearts who need you. Perhaps as one who does not know you as Savior, Lord, you would even draw them today and they would cry out for mercy and for salvation. However you see fit, Lord, I pray that you would draw just now. Ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.